Good morning. My name is Aubrey DeMaster, and the scripture reading for today comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he set up the pillars at the entrance of the temple, one to the south of the entrance and the other to the north. He named the one on the south, Jackin, and the one on the north, Boaz. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, about a month ago or so, Bryn brought home a brochure about an opportunity to take a trip with her school to Washington, D.C. And when Morgan and I saw the price tag of the trip, uh, we had to tell Bryn that unfortunately, the Vervelde home budget does not have the margin to allow for a trip to Washington, D.C. right now. And she was really good about it and totally understands, and so no problem there. But if we can't go to Washington, D.C., then we need to take our own tour of Washington, D.C. And so today, we are going to tour one of the most prominent landmarks in Washington, D.C., the Lincoln Memorial. Here's a few facts about the Lincoln Memorial. Just last year, in 2022, the Lincoln Memorial celebrated its 100-year anniversary. Proposal plans for the memorial when they were deciding what it would look like included a Mayan temple a Mesopotamian ziggurat, and an Egyptian pyramid. The north wall of the memorial features an inscription of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. There is a visible typo in the word future, despite multiple attempts to correct it. You can kind of see they tried to fix it, but you can still see the typo. If you look at the Lincoln statue, the left hand is clenched, symbolizing Lincoln's resolve to see the Civil War to its conclusion. The right hand of the statue is open, representing Lincoln's willingness to welcome the Confederacy back into the Union. The memorial is built upon land reclaimed from the Potomac River. 122 concrete pillars and a foundation as deep as 65 feet in some spots anchor this massive monument. And despite Lincoln's reputation as the great emancipator, the 1922 dedication ceremony of the monument relegated black spectators to a roped-off, segregated area. During World War II, anti-aircraft guns protecting Washington, D.C. were mistakenly fired at the memorial. Three shots struck the memorial above the entrance. No one was injured, but a baseball-sized gouge remains in the facade today. And perhaps what is most memorable or visible about the Lincoln Memorial are the pillars that wrap around the outside of the building. The memorial was designed to look like the Temple of Zeus in Olympia in Greece. There are 36 pillars which represent the 36 states in the Union at the time of Lincoln's death. Each pillar stands 44 feet high with a 7-foot diameter. So that's the Lincoln Memorial. We're in the middle of a series called Rise, where we're looking at Israel's rise to their temple home in Jerusalem, and we're looking at Israel's rise to the temple in Jerusalem because we're in the midst of our own rise to our own worship home. And today, we're looking at the front of the temple entrance, where constructed are two columns or two pillars flanking that entrance. Solomon conscripted a man named Hiram from the city of Tyre to build these pillars, And let's look at the construction, two verses before our scripture reading today. Let's pick it up in 2 Chronicles 3, 15 to 16. It says, For the front of the temple, Hiram made two pillars that were 27 feet tall, each topped by a capital extending upward another seven and a half feet. 
came interwoven chains and used them to decorate the tops of the pillars. He also made 100 decorative pomegranates and attached them to chains. So Hiram from Tyre constructs these two pillars to flank the entrance to the temple. And the column itself is 27 feet. But on top of the column is a seven and a half foot facade or artsy capital that is made to look like pomegranates. And if you remember, the temple had all sorts of floral imagery throughout it. Here's a cutaway to see the inside of the temple. And if you kind of look close, you can sort of see all these trees on the inside walls of the temple. There was all this flora imagery everywhere. Because remember, that is a hyperlink. That is a connection theologically back to the Garden of Eden. That the temple is now the new Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, God dwelt with people. And now we have the temple which is functioning the same way. Where God lives in the temple amongst his people. And so... Uh, uh, the total height of the columns on the temple front, when you take the 27 feet plus the 7.5 feet, are 34 and a half feet. So the temple columns are 34 and a half feet tall, and the Lincoln Memorial columns are 44 feet tall. And the Lincoln Memorial columns are 7 feet in diameter, the temple columns are 6 feet in diameter. So the temple columns are just a little bit shorter than the pillars on the Lincoln Memorial, just kind of for comparison's sake. So that's the construction of the pillars, but these pillars also mean something. And that's where we get into our scripture reading today. Look at verse 17 of 2 Chronicles 3. Then Hiram set up the two pillars at the entrance of the temple, one to the south of the entrance and the other to the north. Hiram named the one on the south Jachin and the one on the north Boaz. And so if you looked at the front of the temple, saw these two columns, they each had names. One was named Jachin and one was named Boaz. And if you look in your Bibles, some of your Bibles might have a little asterisk above those names, and then if you look at the footnote, it may tell you what those names mean. Jacob meant he establishes, or God establishes. And Boaz meant in him is strength, in God is strength. And so these columns not only are pretty to look at and impressive, but they mean something. They mean he establishes and in him is strength. Similarly, the Lincoln Memorial columns mean something. They have 36 of them, reminding people of the 36 states in the Union at the time of Lincoln. And then also they remind us of the Greco-Roman influence on the way that we're governed, in our government. The temple pillars mean he establishes and in him is strength. Let's look at Jachin first. Jachin means he establishes or God establishes. And so when the Israelites saw Jachin, they were reminded of God's sovereignty. And when we talk about God's sovereignty, what we mean is that God is the king, the ruler. He, there is no higher being than God. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He reigns over the entire universe. He created it, and so he reigns over it. And the temple was not only God's home, but it also was considered God's palace. And within the temple was this room called the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which was this box that held the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the cover of the Ark. And on the cover of the Ark were these cherubim with wings outstretched toward one another like this. And, and what that functioned as is this was viewed as God's throne. And so this box with the cover called the mercy seat, the cover was called the mercy seat, and it was called the mercy seat because it was viewed as the place where God sat and ruled. So the temple is not only God's home, but it is God's palace. It is, his, it is his throne room. It is the place where God rules, where he executes his rule, where the king reigns. 
Look at Psalm 24, verses 1 to 2, and David connects all this stuff for us. Psalm, 120, or Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and, here's a key word for us, established it upon the waters. Jacob means he establishes. He established the world and founded it upon the waters. So God is sovereign. God is in charge. God created the earth. He established it. Therefore, God is sovereign over it. And then interestingly, in the very next verse in Psalm 24, David connects us to the very temple. Look at what he says in verse 3. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He's talking about the hill that the temple was built on, Mount Zion. Who may stand in his holy place? He's talking about the room that God reigns from. God's throne room. So God established the earth, therefore he is sovereign over it. He is the highest being. There is no one higher than God. We're part of a denomination called the Evangelical Covenant Order of Presbyterians, which is a mouthful, and if you know Presbyterians, they like to do that. Basically, they take something simple and complicate it. It's what we do. But what that means is that we're part of the Reformed tradition of Christian theology. And if I were to summarize Reformed theology, it boils down to two words, God's sovereignty. That in Reformed theology, we emphasize that the Lord is the Lord. That God's in charge of everything. Abraham Kuyper was a Reformed theologian, and one of his most famous quotes is a quote that I absolutely love, which beautifully illustrates God's sovereignty. Here's what Kuyper says. He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, dare mine. I love that image of God looking over the universe, looking over the cosmos, and Jesus says, That's mine. I'm in charge of that. That belongs to me. Now, you don't have to be a Reformed theologian. You don't have to have heard of Reformed theology. You don't even have to have heard of the Lord or sovereignty or God or Jesus or if whatever I'm saying today is totally new to you. That's totally fine. What I'm saying is you are welcome here. You don't even have to buy all the tenets of Reformed theology to be welcome here. You are welcome here. What I am saying is that my hope is that Grace 242 is a place where Jesus is sovereign, where palpably God's in charge, where God is the reign king, reigning king here. That's what I'm saying. You don't have to know any of this stuff to be welcome here. But what I do want is for this place to be a place where he's in charge. There's this scene in the first Toy Story movie where Woody and Buzz wind up in this crane game and the prizes to be won from the crane game are these little alien toys. And so let's just watch this scene. Go ahead, Jim, play that movie. Who's in charge here? So Buzz Lightyear asks these alien figurines like, this is Kay. like, who's in charge here? And they all point up and they're like, the claw. And they say, the claw decides who stays and who goes. And they go into this whole thing about how the claw's in charge. But what I want is when someone asks us who's in charge here, that we go like this. And we say, he's in charge. God's in charge. The church does not belong to us. This church does not belong to the elders. The church does not belong to Bill Verveldi. The church belongs to Jesus. That when it's asked who's in charge, Jesus is in charge. And that it's felt that Jesus is in charge. 
I want to be a place where God is sovereign, where Jesus is in charge. I have a friend who used to pastor a church. And when he took the job, they knew at the church that they were kind of on a downward slope and they were declining in membership and there wasn't you know, a, a very bright future in store. And so my friend began praying, Lord, give us a solution to our downward trajectory here. Like, we don't want to die as a church. We don't want to close the doors. So help us out, Lord. Give us a solution. And God provided an answer in the form of a merger with another healthy, younger, growing church. When I say younger, I don't mean younger in age of the congregation. I mean younger in less time they'd been around as a church. So they were, there was a healthy, growing, vibrant congregation that was willing to assimilate my friend's church into their body. And this was like a win-win merger because the growing and vibrant and healthy church never had a place to worship. And so they would get the building of my friend's church, and then my friend's church would win because they would get to be assimilated into a larger, vibrant, growing congregation. So it seemed like the Lord was providing this amazing answer. But in order for the merger to go through, the congregation had to vote on it. And before the vote, one of the leaders, church leader from my friend's church, went around and began to sow disfavor and division about that vote. He went around and said, you know, the leadership's presenting this merger. I don't think it's a good move for us. I would encourage you to vote no. I'm going to be voting no. I don't think you should. So he did, you know, leadership 101, present a united front. He totally undermined all of that. Went to the congregation, sowed disfavor, disunity, and, and, and lo and behold, unsurprisingly, the vote failed. And that congregation is now still in that same spot, languishing, not a bright future. The graphs are pointing down for them, dwindling in membership. I don't know if they're going to survive. But my friend, when he was telling me this sad story about the failed vote, he said his take on that church leader was that church leader does not believe the church belongs to Jesus. That church leader believes the church belongs to him, that he's in charge of the church and that his will ought to go. But the church doesn't belong to him. Church doesn't belong to me. Church belongs to Jesus. It's his will that goes. He's sovereign. He's the Lord. He's the shot caller. He's in charge. And so when Israel looked at those pillars and they saw the pillar of Jacob, they they were reminded God is sovereign. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And then they look at the other pillar, Boaz, which meant in him is strength. And they were reminded that strength is in the Lord. They were reminded of God's sovereignty and they were reminded of God's strength. Strength is in the Lord. Job says in Job 9, verses 19a, he says, if it's a question of strength, he's the strong one. And David sings to the Lord in Psalm 22, 19, you are my strength. How can we be a place where God's strength is made manifest? You know, it's like in Him is strength. Yeah, I want to tap into that. In God there is strength. I want to tap into that. So how can we be a place that manifests God's strength? How can we be a place that taps into God's strength? Earlier this week, Psalm 133 with me. and Psalm 133 is actually a song of ascent, meaning the Jews would sing this song as they would come to Jerusalem for these festivals that they would have throughout the year. 
And they call it a song of ascent because Jerusalem is on a hill. And then the temple is on a hill on a hill. (laughs) So it's going up to Jerusalem and then you go up to the temple. And we've talked about how the temple dedication ceremony is happening during a festival. The festival of booths or feast of tabernacles. And the Israelites were coming to Jerusalem for the festival. And I would like to think that as they ascended to the city and as they ascended to the temple, that they sang Psalm 133. How can we tap into God's strength? How can we be a place where we manifest the Lord's strength? Well, I think Psalm 133 has an answer for us. It says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down above the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Where does the Lord bestow his blessing? He does so in unity. He does so when brothers live in perfect harmony. How are we strong? We are strong in unity. We're strong when we're unified. We like to think of unity, or we like to think of strength, rather, in terms of numbers, I think, in the West. It's like the more of us there are, the stronger we are, right? Bigger, better, more, better, more, stronger. But God does not think of unity in terms of numbers. In fact, sometimes I think God actively rejects that form of thinking and presents a different vision of unity that's not around numbers. You look at Gideon, and God actually had Gideon pare down the army of soldiers from thousands of men to only 300 men. And why these 300? Because all of them were unified in the way they drank water from a stream. Instead of leaning over and sucking the water right out, leaving themselves open to attack, they lapped up the water. And so they were were more alert, and ready to fight back. And so he pairs down the army from thousands of men to 300 men, and it's with those 300 men that he overthrows the Midianites. So it's in the unity of those 300 men that the Midianites are defeated. And then you have the unity of three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who agree we cannot bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and so they resolutely stand at the risk of their life when it comes to bow down. And the Lord uses their united stand to turn the heart of Nebuchadnezzar toward him. And then you have Jesus, who's talking to a group of eager followers. They're like, yeah, yeah, how do we follow you, Jesus? How do we follow you? We're on board with you. We're excited about you. And Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And as Jesus continues to say more and more, he says, I'm the bread of life. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And the crowd goes, I'm not doing that. And slowly the crowd dissipates and people walk away because the bar is too high. And at the end of it all, Jesus is left with only his 12 disciples. But yet it's through those 12 disciples that the gospel goes forward to the ends of the earth. It's through those 12 disciples that the message that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the one we've been waiting for, the promised one, it's through those 12 that the message of Jesus goes forth. So God conceives of unity differently. And I have seen how disunity derails a church and a congregation. It's like we're so busy fighting one another 
The kingdom of the Lord is not going forward. Disciples are not being made. We're not multiplying the kingdom of God by making disciples because we're too busy pushing our own agendas and fighting one another. And I've seen that oftentimes, and this is a really scary pattern, is I've been connected to churches long enough to see that disunity is a repeated family system pattern. So I've seen churches where Pastor gets brought in for about 10 years or so, things are good, and then after about a decade, yep, the old disunity surfaces again, a big blow-up happens, and then inevitably the pastor either leaves or the pastor is fired, and they go, okay, good, glad that's over, but all you're doing is resetting the clock. And then 10 years later, the same thing happens again. There's disunity, fighting, pastor gets fired, and they go, okay, good, we got that out of the way. It's like, do you see the repeated family system here? Right? So once you let it in, it's very hard to get rid of because it can be generational and repeats itself in the family cycle. And I think this is why the gospel writers, or the New Testament writers, especially Paul, just absolutely hammer unity. If you read Paul, he loves talking about unity. And you're like, man, Paul, you spend more time talking about unity than you do about Jesus. I mean, not really, but it certainly seems like that sometimes. But Paul knows he needs to talk about unity because then we're not pushing Jesus. Then we're not allowing the gospel to go forward. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And what is that purpose? It's he's in charge, and he tells us, go and make disciples. That's what we need to be unified around, is that Jesus is in charge, and Jesus gives us a mission, and that is to make disciples. That's why we exist. God is sovereign And in God, there is strength. When the Israelites looked at the pillars of the temple flanking the entrance, they were reminded, God's in charge, and in God, there is strength. And I want the same to go for us. God's in charge, and we are unified and strong in the purpose that he told us, go and make disciples. That's what I want for us, to be unified and to tap in God's strength as we unify around the gospel. Interestingly, The great-great-grandfather of Solomon shared a name with one of the pillars. One of the pillars is named Boaz, and Solomon's great-great-grandfather is named Boaz. And if you look at the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has this long genealogy, and he draws a line from Boaz all the way to Jesus. So Boaz was a forefather of Jesus. And then Jesus grows up. And before he goes to the cross, he has this amazing prayer in John 17. Just sometimes sit down and read the entirety of John 17 in one sitting. It's Jesus praying for his people. It's just incredible to get a window into Jesus' prayer in such a fantastic way. But look at what Jesus prays for his followers in John 17. And we're going to read verses 11 and verse 21. Here's what Jesus prays for his followers. He says, now I am departing from the world Because he's about to go to the cross, so he knows he's about to depart. They, meaning my followers, Jesus' followers, are staying in this world. But I am coming to you. He's talking to his dad. 
Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect my followers by the power of your name so that my followers will be united just as you and I are, Dad. Isn't that amazing? That he prays that the followers of Jesus would be united in the same way that he is united in the Trinity to his Father. So he is lifting his followers into participation with the very Godhead, with the members of the Trinity. And then, if this isn't making sense yet, maybe it still won't, but he says the same thing, basically, in verse 21. He says, I pray that my followers will all be one. You, Father, and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may my followers be in us, so that the world will believe you, Father, sent me. So again, he's lifting his followers up into very participation in the Godhead. And he's saying to his father, Father, as you and I are one, may my followers be one as well. And so as we come to the Lord's table today, remember that when we come to the table, this is an act of unity. First of all, we recognize that we are unified with one another. And not just in this congregation, but with all believers. So we are unified with all followers of Jesus here at the table. So there's a horizontal unity going on here. But then there's also a vertical unity going on in that Jesus actually is lifting us to himself. He, I imagine him almost lifting us into participation with the Godhead. Like I get my own little meeting room with Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. And he nourishes me at this table. And so as you come to the table today, be conceiving of the horizontal unity that we have with other believers, but also the vertical unity that we have with Jesus himself himself.